this is liquid gold. All right, where seasonal affective disorder is more than menu inspiration, welcome back to a sad, not really sad, but a seasonal affective disorder inspired for the first episode in a new season here on Liquid Gold. I'm your host, Mike Wolf, today, going solo like Castaway style, out on an island, talking about the pina colada. We haven't covered pina colada, and now it's the time. We could wait till summer, but I think this is a perfect time to talk about it, to make some. It factors into dry January, because it's a really nice dry January cocktail to make. It's easy to make non-alcoholic and still taste about the same, because a lot of good pina coladas, you're not going to taste a lot of rum in them. There's just too much other flavors going on. But I'm fresh off a trip to Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico. Was out there, did some uh, investigating of the origins of the pina colada. Pina colada hails from Puerto Rico, from the Caribe Hotel, the Hilton Hotel that opened there in the 50s. That played a huge role in drinking culture, if you think about it, because the pina colada went on to be the most popular drink in America. Later, probably the world. Who knows? Probably a hard thing to, to quantify. But the pina colada blew up as one of the biggest drinks of all time came from Puerto Rico, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Let's throw a shout out to the We Own This Town podcast network and everybody at weownthistown.net, producer Michael Eads, helming the music show, as he's done for a long time, and a lot of amazing Nashville artists that he is featuring, so do check out the music show on We Own This Town, one of my faves. And then you can also check us out on the new website, liquidgold.show. And check out the new book, Cheer, a liquid gold holiday drinking guide that came out last November. Did a bunch of events for that. It's been a lot of fun getting that out in the world. So the pina colada is a big one for me because this was like the first drink that I had ever made. This goes back to being able to find the Bacardi frozen uh, pina colada concentrate mixers in the freezer aisles. And this was something that my friend Rex and I I grew up with and Rex was a big Jimmy Buffett fan so in the winter time we would get sad we would miss the sunshine we were not really winter sport guys we were more summertime guys and uh, I do remember going back a few winters where we'd go to the freezer aisle pick up a uh, pina colada frozen concentrate and just throw it in a blender with maybe a little bit of ice cream uh, maybe a little milk and mix up these you know tropical-inspired beverages that we learned about from listening to Jimmy Buffett. I believe that's that's the memory that I have of it. I don't know how else we would have known about the pina colada, really. We didn't really mind or, or take much notice of the fact that it said on the recipe on the back of the can to add rum. We, we weren't really interested in the rum. We just wanted to have the tropical vibes, I suppose. But, uh, I looked it up, and you can still get these Bacardi Frozen Concentrate cans of pina colada. And they have other flavors, just like they did back then. I can remember they had strawberry margarita. They had rum runner. So I believe they've still got those and maybe a couple other ones. And I just I looked it up to see if you could still find it. And you can at, uh, through Walmart. So if you're interested in that, here we are touting Bacardi Frozen mixer, Mixers and Walmart. But there it is. But also, of course, we're going to tell you there's a much better way to do this. And the creation, what's amazing about the history of rum, the history of cocktails, the history of the pina colada, 
they sort of all converged in Puerto Rico, where they came up with coconut cream was invented at the University of San Juan in Puerto Rico. So we're going to get into that a little bit later. I'll have a little more info on, on who came up with that and when and how that plays into the whole thing. But it's really pretty fascinating when you think about it. This little island, you know, off the coast, out there in the Caribbean, just as with Cuba, which is uh, much bigger than Puerto Rico, but both those islands had such an influence on drinking culture worldwide because worldwide you have people drinking daiquiris, mojitos, pina coladas, the painkiller, which is the offshoot of the pina colada that's insanely delicious and maybe a little bit more worth your time than, you, than the pina colada. But if you're feeling sad, if you have seasonal affective disorder, I know people whose therapists have recommended getting a uh, seasonal affective disorder, one of those uh, lights that you can get um, to put next to your bed or put on your desk. I've had uh, my own therapist recommend it. So in, in accordance with that, maybe try a non-alcoholic or alcoholic pina colada as well. It will take you to the tropics in no time. I'm going to give you a recipe. Now, this is the recipe. We're going to talk about the origins a little bit here. And the, the Carib Hilton in Puerto Rico, which was the first place in San Juan that, I, that uh, my wife and I went to right off the plane. So we got to go. And when we went in, there, were, there was a live band playing, uh, traditional music of the country, and just sounded incredible. It was a great room to kind of walk into, even though it has been redone and there's not a lot of evidence of its former mid-century glory. Uh, the entire kind of lobby and bar area and outside has kind of been renovated. But it is the original structure. Uh, but the, they have the recipe on the wall. We'll put this on our Instagram. But just so you've got a recipe to get you going here, the recipe on the wall there. They talk about who invented it. We'll get into it. But the recipe is two ounces of white rum, one ounce of coconut cream, Coco Lopez is the one that you can find pretty much everywhere. So go ahead and use that. Making your own is pretty difficult and takes a lot of time. Uh, one ounce of heavy cream, six ounces of fresh pineapple juice, half a cup of crushed ice. You throw that in a blender, blend it up for maybe, say, six to eight seconds. Pour that in the best uh, tropical-looking glass that you have. And garnish it with a pineapple wedge and a cherry garnish. And that's it. That's a pretty easy drink. You could... Now, what I would say, we've talked about Maldon sea salt on the show before. That would be a really nice hack. Just an easy way to make it just a little bit better because that's the kind of salt you want to use in desserts. It's a great finishing salt. It's a little bit creamier than kosher salt. There's a pretty big difference between the two. Like I've got kosher salt and I've got Maldon salt in my kitchen. Use them for different things. Maldon salt is what you'd want to you'd want to add a little pinch of that into the uh, this pina colada. And what you'll notice is it kind of tames the sweetness. It kind of integrates the flavors and serves that purpose that salt does, which is to make everything taste just a little bit better. Now it's not the kind of salt where you would notice it. You don't really want to taste the salt. But you'll notice how, how much better the drink will be if you add just a touch. We're also going to get into some books and booze content today. Uh, Jeff Beachbumberry's book, Potions of the Caribbean, is one of my absolute favorite cocktail books. It's beautifully put together, has all these old 
uh, photos from old brochures and advertisements and magazine articles, vintage photos, and tons of info about the origins on many of our favorite tropical cocktails. So Potions of the Caribbean we're going to talk about. The other book we're going to talk about is Hunter S. Thompson's The Rum Diary. What's amazing about The Rum Diary is I've read most of Hunter S. Thompson's books. I love his writing. I love the whole gonzo style, but I think more than that, what gets lost in the gonzo and the craziness of the late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s stuff, and then a lot of the early 80s stuff was was really wild, but The Rum Diary shows what a gifted writer he was. And it was one of the first books he ever wrote. It didn't get published for, I want to say, like 35 years or so after he wrote it, almost 40 years after he wrote it. So I think The Rum Diary is one of the greatest pieces of writing that he ever did. It's one of the best things you'll read about that time period in America, where we were kind of looking at Cuba. We had been in Cuba. We had to get out of Cuba. We had done a lot to change Havana, especially. Uh, and then we started looking to Puerto Rico to, you know, as we pulled out of Havana and pulled out of Cuba as the revolution set in, we looked to Puerto Rico to sort of take up that tropical mantle. I'm not going to get into the good or the bad and all that that uh, of what happened, because it just happened. But the Rum Diary gives you a really, a really interesting picture of that time in San Juan. Hunter S. Thompson was a newspaper writer there. He lived in old San Juan, so... We were walking some of the same streets that he did, saw some of the spots where he might have lived and hung out. And Old San Juan is a beautiful place to check out. It's like an old European city and really quaint, really cool. And there's actually a place there, and this is part of the debate of the origins of the Pina Colada that Jeff Beachbum Berry puts to rest in his book because he digs up a lot of evidence. There's cocktail menus, you know, that go back further, but there's a place in Old San Juan, and this is uh, La Casa Donde Nació, La Pina Colada, the house where in 1963 the Pina Colada was created by Don Ramon Portas Mingo. And this is called uh, Barraquina, the Barraquina restaurant. It claims to be the birthplace, but there's just a lot of evidence that that's not the case. Um, now, I don't really care too much to litigate this of who came up with it it doesn't really matter we had both we had the caribs and we had barquinas and barquinas was better even though it's quite unlikely that's where it came from they made a delicious one um, it was a little bit creamier there could have been more heavy cream and there seemed to be more of a lean on the fresh pineapple juice which when you start using fresh pineapple juice in a cocktail it'll blow your mind say you can use half an ounce in a daiquiri in your traditional daiquiri up to two ounces, you'll notice that with pineapple juice, you can use quite a bit. Um, it doesn't give you a ton of acid, but it does give you some. It doesn't give you a ton of sweetness, but it will give you some, depending on the ripeness of the pineapple. But I would always use uh, fresh pineapple when you can. It can be a little bit cumbersome and tough to deal with and tough to juice and all that, but it's worth it uh, for sure. And if you have a really ripe pina colada or a, a really ripe pineapple, you don't necessarily need a juicer or a juicing machine. You can kind of press it. You can cut it into, say, like half circles, half squares, and uh, 
put them in your hand juicer and hand juice them that way as long as it's pretty ripe. And you'll, you'll definitely get some juice out of it. You'll get a ton more uh, yield if you run them through a juicer. Okay. Now here's from uh, Beach Bum Berries, Potions of the Caribbean. A lot of great stuff on the pina colada and origins of tropical drinks in general, as well as Puerto Rico and the Carib Hilton. Uh, he says, and I quote, Puerto Rico was the pilot project for this exercise in patriotism and profit. So Conrad Hilton pulled out all the stops with his first Hilton International Resort. The 10-story Carib Hilton sat on its own peninsula with a picturesque old Spanish castle to one side and a brand new private beach on the other. Blasted out of coral and covered with imported sand, guaranteed not to stick to clothing. Each of the 309 rooms had triangular balcony with picture windows canted to ensure privacy, and the outdoor pool flowed under a glass wall into the travertine and bamboo lobby. It was also swanky that even the critic for interiors and industrial design who gave the Carib a 14-page rave review in 1950 couldn't help contrasting it with the slums of nearby San Juan. Back then, when you would walk into this swanky hotel, you would be handed the complimentary Welcome Carib Hilton cocktail. And this in itself would probably be the most popular drink at any bar that you went to here in the States. This is uh, an ounce and a half of gold Puerto Rican rum, half ounce of apricot brandy, maybe an apricot liqueur, one whole fresh young coconut, two ounces of fresh coconut water drained from the young coconut, half ounce of Coco Lopez coconut cream. And we'll get into the origins of that particular product that he talks about in the book here in a second. And then three teaspoons or one third of an ounce of fresh lime juice. That's a pretty amazing cocktail. Can you imagine just walking into a hotel in 1950, 1954, and they're handing you this drink as you arrive? Something they note about the importance of uh, coconut cream and the development of Coco Lopez, which made it just easier for anyone to make a pina colada, anyone to make any kind of coconut drink at all. This was developed in the early 1950s by Puerto Rico University professor Don Ramon Lopez Arizari. Over a half a century later, as uh, Barry notes in the book, it's still the best brand of processed coconut cream on the market. It's easy to find and easy to use. There's even squeeze bottles of it now, which I think is relatively new. I still remember years ago working at a bar and cracking open the cans with a can opener. Now you just squeeze it out of a squeeze bottle, turn it upside down, and you're good to go. Um, he mentions in here about how difficult it was to use coconut cream back then to make it and how uh, pina colada basically means strained pineapple. So sort of a weird name for such a creamy drink, but basically when they just started making this drink, which was also, they were also using, so they would use coconut cream in the drink, but they were also, use, also using coconut cream in the welcome cocktail. So they were having to make a ton of this stuff. That's why the development of the Coco Lopez was so crucial to being able to handle the volume that would later overtake the entire country, both of Puerto Rico and America. Basically, uh, what these uh, hotel chefs and cooks would do to make the coconut cream before Coco Lopez, would they crack open a mature hard coconut, which is not easy, 
grating the meat. Then you heat the you heat that meat in its own milk, forcing the cooked pulp through cheesecloth. Then you set the extracted liquid aside to cool, and then skim off the top layer of coconut cream. But Co- as the, as he notes in the book, Coco Lopez did all of that for you. Then sweetened it with cane sugar and put it in a can. So this was a godsend. Uh, the bar manager at the Carib Hilton. His name was Ricardo Garcia. Ricardo Gracia. He reconfigured the Welcome Carib recipe to take advantage of the labor-saving coconut cream cans while someone on his staff came up with the idea of adding Coco Lopez to the Carib's Pina Fria. So Gracia claimed that this was all a group effort, but Hotel Flax now credit one Ramon Monchito Marrero Perez. For reasons unknown, Beach Bumberry notes... This new pineapple coconut drink appeared on the Carib bar menu as Pina Colada. As he says, if the name was wrong, the timing wasn't. The Pina Colada swiftly replaced the Welcome Carib Hilton as the hotel's signature drink, and before the decade was out, it had become a publicist's dream, commanding nationwide attention as the preferred Carib quaff of hotel guests John Wayne, Elizabeth Taylor, Charlton Heston, and Sunset Boulevard star Gloria Swanson. Ready for her close-up. Drinking a pina colada. Uh, Joan Crawford declared that drinking a pina colada was better than slapping Betty Davis in the face. So that's kind of amazing. So the origins of this drink absolutely blew up the tropical drinks boom and kind of inadvertently led to a lot of the really simple, oversimplified and oversweet drinks that came to be in the late 60s and 70s as that cocktail boom was dying out. Let me read you, uh, this is from the, the Potions of the Caribbean as well. This is a menu from the Carib Hilton. There in the mid-50s, this is an incredible drink menu. Bebidas Tropicales, tropical drinks. The Carib Welcome, which we went over. They've got the Bacardi Cocktail, the Banana Cow, which is ripe bananas and milk with a dash of sugar. And you can get it without rum for 30 cents. Nice morning cocktail without the rum. The daiquiri was on there. Pina Fria, sort of the precursor to the pina colada. Geronimo Punch with orange juice, limes, sugar, and rum. Sort of a really basic tiki template. Uh, The mojito was on there. Sobra Mesa was uh, an after-dinner drink. Coconut cream, rum, and cream. So kind of a pina colada without the pineapple. And then they had the rum salute which was uh, native lime and pineapple juices with a dash of orgeat syrup and Angostura bitter and Puerto Rico's gold rum. That sounds incredible. And then you've also got a drink called the Rum Cow. Rum and milk flavors, a delicious, frothy drink. So that's an amazing drink menu. Most of the drinks range from 60 cents, 55 cents, 65 cents, to the Carib Welcome. If you wanted one in the the, uh, coconut, the hollowed-out coconut, that would cost you a dollar. So probably not a bad place to hang out at all. The recipe that Beach Bum Berry gives in the book, and uh, he claims that uh, from Jared Brown, who did a lot of research, a scholarly monograph on the pina colada, pegs the day as August 15th, 1954, which would have been about nine years before the other place, uh, Barraquina in Old San Juan, claimed to have have invented it. But uh, this recipe is two ounces white Puerto Rican rum, one ounce Coco Lopez coconut cream, one ounce heavy cream, 
six ounces unsweetened pineapple juice, half cup crushed ice. So yeah, about the same as what we said earlier. And I think having fresh pineapple juice is huge. If you're in a pinch and you want to try the canned stuff, give it a shot. But you might want to see how magical it can be with fresh pineapple. So that's the pina colada there. Incredible history. As I noted, Barraquinas in Old San Juan was also really delicious. It was better than what we had at the Carib. The Caribs was really good and kind of special to have the cocktail at its origin spot, but it needed a little more pineapple. It didn't have, it was just kind of sweet. It almost had a really light kind of soapy note that was a little weird, um, but hey, it was a pina colada. It was good. The one that we had in Old San Juan at Barraquina, or Barraquina, uh, just had more cream notes to it um, and more pineapple. So it was kind of more well-rounded and was just delicious. Another book to check out, if you're interested in checking out, um, if you're going to Puerto Rico, if you're interested in checking out Old San Juan or San Juan in general, you got to check out The Rum Diary, Hunter S. Thompson's masterpiece, one of his first books. I think he wrote two early books that did not get published. Rum Diary was the one that was just incredible. Um, got published around 1998. You may have heard about the movie with Johnny Depp. And the movie's okay. It's not great, but it's a pretty good visually. It, it brings to life some of the visuals that you have while you're reading the book. But one thing that they do, they kind of take two characters from the book and make them one, which is really kind of fucked up and doesn't really tie into the book a whole lot. But um, it's decent. It'll give you some visuals of the old San Juan area. That's kind of cool. But there is no substitute for the actual book. I'm going to read a few passages from The Rum Diary. This is one of the more famous excerpts from the book or paragraphs. And one of his best couple sentences, I think, of writing as well. This is uh, right as he's getting into old San Juan in a cab on the way from the airport. Quote, in the cab, I leaned back and lit a small cigar I'd bought in the coffee shop. I was feeling better now, warm and sleepy and absolutely free. With the palm zipping past and the big sun burning down on the road ahead, I had a flash of something I hadn't felt since my first months in Europe. A mixture of ignorance and a loose what-the-hell kind of confidence that comes on a man when the wind picks up and he begins to move in a hard, straight line toward an unknown horizon. That's a great one. Another one from Thompson, giving some context to uh, that time period that he had kind of dropped himself into. Quote, at that time, the U.S. State Department was calling Puerto Rico America's advertisement in the Caribbean, living proof that capitalism can work in Latin America. The people who had come there to do the proving saw themselves as heroes and missionaries, bringing the holy message of free enterprise to the downtrodden Hibaros. They hated commies like they hated sin, and the fact that an ex-red was publishing a paper in their town did not make them happy. Lauterman simply couldn't cope with it. This was the publisher he's talking about. He went out of his way to attack anything that smelled even faintly of the political left because he knew he'd be crucified if he didn't. On the other hand, he was a slave to the freewheeling Commonwealth government, whose U.S. subsidies were not only supporting half the new industry on the island, but were paying for most of the news advertising as well. It was a nasty bind, not just for Lauterman, but for a good many others. A line about uh, that he's got about just hanging out and, and you know drinking on hot afternoons in San Juan, taking breaks from the paper. They would walk up, up the hill in old San Juan there to a bar that was basically in an old house that had like a patio, sit and drink rum on the rocks, 
And he says in the book, and I quote, this is what I told myself on those hot afternoons in San Juan when I was 30 years old and my shirt stuck damply to my back and I felt myself on that big and lonely hump with my hard-nosed years behind me and all the rest downhill. They were eerie days. And my fatalistic view of Yeoman, who was someone he worked with at the paper, was not so much conviction as necessity. Because if I granted him even the slightest optimism, I would have to admit a lot of unhappy things about myself. He's got, uh, in the book, he's got uh, some really interesting insights to Viaquez, the island uh, where, where we did spend some time. Just an incredible place. I would highly recommend checking out Viaquez. Uh, it's a little island. You can take a little plane over to, or you can take a ferry. The ferry is much cheaper. There's a lot to really love about Viaquez. A lot of great little beaches, little coves to find, and some great drinks as well. There are painkillers, a few spots making painkillers that were just amazing. And not, not fancy places at all, just beachside places, humble spots that were really cool. But this is what Hunter S. Thompson wrote about Viaquez as he was heading over to that little island off Puerto Rico for the first time, he said, and I quote, My first feeling was a wild desire to drive a stake in the sand and claim the place for myself. The beach was white as salt and cut off from the world by a ring of steep hills that faced the sea. We were on the edge of a large bay and the water was that clear turquoise color that you get with a white sand bottom. I had never seen such a place. I wanted to take off all my clothes and never wear them again. It was the kind of town that made you feel like Humphrey Bogart. You came in on a bumpy little plane and for some mysterious reason got a private room with a balcony overlooking the town and the harbor. Then you sat there and drank until something happened. I felt a tremendous distance between me and everything real. Here I was on Viaquez Island, a place so insignificant that I had never heard of it until I'd been told to come here, delivered by one nut and waiting to be taken off by another. So he had some adventures. Another great line in the book that uh, became one of his more quoted lines, um, this is as things are starting to get a little dicey for him, and he feels like he's probably got to get the hell out of there. But he writes, and I quote, No matter how much I wanted all those things that I needed money to buy, there was some devilish current pushing me off in another direction, toward anarchy and poverty and craziness, that maddening delusion that a man can lead a decent life without hiring himself out as a Judas goat. And the next line in the next paragraph, he says, Finally, I got drunk and went to bed. So I love a good last paragraph of a book, and I don't want to spoil it for you, but I am going to spoil it for you. This doesn't really spoil the ending or anything, but um, and it's not really that kind of book. There's no real cliffhangers, I would say. I know this can be a hard book to find, so I will tell you to check out maybe McKay's there in West Nashville. You can find a lot of cool books there for cheap, but this is the last part of the book from Hunter S. Thompson's Rum Diary, and I quote, Sala called for more drink, and Sweep brought four rums, saying they were on the house. We thanked him and sat for another half hour, saying nothing. Down on the waterfront, I could hear the slow clang of a ship's bell as it eased against the pier, and somewhere in the city, a motorcycle roared through the narrow streets, sending its echo up the hill to Calle O'Leary. Voices rose and fell in the house next door, and the raucous sound of a jukebox came from a bar down the street. Sounds of a San Juan night. Drifting across the city through layers of humid air, sounds of life and movement, people getting ready and people giving up, the sound of hope and the sound of hanging on, and behind them all the quiet, deadly ticking of a thousand hungry clocks, the lonely sound of time passing in the long Caribbean night. Pretty damn good. So any aspiring writers out there, 
or if you've been working on a project that you don't feel like you're ever going to finish or that's not going to see the light of day or is going to struggle to see the light of day, we've all been there. Just remember, this was an amazing work from a young writer and nobody wanted to publish it for almost 40 years. And uh, when it finally did get published, you know, it was turned into a movie a little bit later. But when it did finally get published, I think people saw what an incredible talent he was early on. He had said before writing his first novels, one thing that he did was he sat down and he wrote out word for word, line by line, sat at a typewriter and typed out F. Scott's F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, Great Gatsby. And then he also, I believe, sat down at a typewriter and wrote out uh, Hemingway's, I think it was Sun Also Rises. It might have been For Whom the Bell Tolls, one of those. There's been writers in the past who have done that. Um, I've never tried that one. But just to get the rhythm and the cadence and things like that, he would do things like that, sort of teaching himself how to write. But he was an incredible talent early on and had some wild times there in San Juan. So something else that we learned about in San Juan and a little bit uh, outside of the old San Juan was we checked out the incredible, and I had known about this rum. I used to buy it for years and loved it and have used it at bars and cocktails. And But I learned so much more about it on this trip, and that's Ron Baralito, which I would highly recommend. If you can get a bottle of the Three Star, which is not that hard to find, I think it's in about 40 states. But the Ron Baralito Three Star is just an absolutely incredible rum. Rum-wise, I think it's the jewel of Puerto Rico. Now they have, I think it was like a 30-year and maybe a 20-year that are only available at the distillery. But I did not buy a bottle because they're like $800 and $300. So if someone has any and they want to share with the Liquid Gold crew, go ahead and email us liquidgoldpod at gmail.com or hit us up on Instagram at liquidgold underscore pod. Or hit me up at MikeWolf underscore books. Would love to try that one if anybody's got a, a bottle lying around. Um, but the what's so amazing about Ron Baralito, we went and we toured the distillery. They're making incredible cocktails at the bar there. They have a menu of about eight different drinks. They've got painkillers. They've got daiquiris. They've got smoked old fashions. They're smoking cinnamon. They were doing some really cool stuff, using fresh juice, doing cocktail classes, really impressed with that spot. And it's not necessarily a very big operation, which kind of makes it even cooler. They've got a huge old sugarcane mill slash press. So a huge old hundreds years old cane juicer, essentially, that's housed in this big brick cylinder um, that we'll post pictures of. But what's so fascinating about it and what we learned is it has this connection to Pitoro, which uh, you might remember, Shamil Velasquez, the Puerto Rican chef from Charleston, who's now in Charleston, uh, working at Monero, and uh, he's home in the kitchen at Monero and Delaney Oyster House, amazing chef. He was on our Coquito episode, where we talked a lot about Puerto Rico and traditions there. We talked about Pitoro, which is Tears of the Mountain. That's what Pitoro means, and it's essentially their moonshine out there. So they'll take like a cane-based moonshine so like a white lightning kind of rum base that's basically like i don't know where i got it i don't know where he got it i don't know where they got it but we got it somewhere and then families will infuse fruits or their own recipes spices 
basically it's a lot of like dried fruit or fresh fruit. Say you've got papaya, coconut, passion fruit, some citrus peel. You've got spices. A lot of people have their own recipe. And when we went to a little neighborhood restaurant in Viaquez, we were offered some uh, some of their house pitoro and tried it. And it was incredible. So super strong. I'd say it was around 115 proof. And they had a papaya tree growing out back. They had passion fruit vines growing all around us. And so they probably it tasted like they had some passion fruit. I definitely heard them mention papaya. And then they had like cinnamon, clove, nutmeg. They had some spices in there. It was amazing. Super strong. They've gotten a little plastic jug behind the counter. It's kind of like, don't tell anybody where you got it. <laughs> but what's so incredible to me is that Ron Barilito has a connection to this kind of Pitoro culture because what's so unique about Ron Barilito is there are four different infusions that they have going or macerations where they have these huge wooden vats where they have four mysterious infusions going. And if I was going to guess, so you get to smell them. They're not going to tell you what's in there, but you do get to smell them. And one was, we were pretty sure it was like a vanilla. One was seemed like a tropical fruit. Maybe it was like a dried papaya. There are papaya trees kind of all over the property there. So that was one idea we had. Another one was definitely an herb, almost like a chamomile-like, but milder, a little bit more like thyme. So some sort of mysterious Caribbean herb. And then another one was sort of a little bit more medicinal, but also sort of floral. I don't know of many other rums at all in the Caribbean um, that have that sort of tradition. This isn't like a fly by the seat of your pants because Ron Barilito is exceptional and it is pretty consistent. It's always pretty much tasted the same to me, but um, they've got these four macerations going that are key to the final product. Um, and that was just fascinating to kind of make that connection between the Pitoro and Ron Barilito. So that sort of made it full circle for me. So if you're going to get a bottle and they're not a sponsor or anything, I'm just telling stories here. Um, it would be, it would be a great rum to make a, an exceptional, uh, painkiller with, which you could do two ounces, two ounces of a dark rum. This Ron Barilito would be great. Pussers was the original. And then four ounces of pineapple juice, one ounce of orange juice, one ounce cream of coconut. So you'll see the the similar, similarities there with the pina colada. Very similar. But it's a dark rum and you add orange juice and then you garnish it with uh, nutmeg. And this is a drink that you can shake in a shaker. Shake vigorously and then just open pour it into a snifter or a hurricane glass. Garnish it with fresh nutmeg. And they were making these all over uh, the island of Viaquez, and we saw a few in San Juan as well. And it's an incredible drink. Would be amazing with the Ron Barilito. All right. Well, I think I've taken enough of your time today talking about the tropical way to ward off seasonal affective disorder. Thanks for listening. We've got a ton more content this year to come. We're going to be getting into some topics we never have before. Maybe some cooking liquids. Maybe some random liquids we've never featured before water should we get into water water's becoming pretty controversial in many parts of the country and the world but as always plenty more to come kenneth will be back for booze news 
and many more guests. My name's Mike Wolf, and thanks to producer Michael Eads. Shout out to Upright T-Rex Music for the tunes. Jess Matching for the logo. Check us out at liquidgold.show, and we will see you next time right here on Liquid Gold. Later, Tater.